Is your firm as inclusive as it could be? There's a pretty good chance if you're thinking to yourself, hmm, I'm not sure it's not. Well, our show today is not only going to explore that topic, but we're going to talk about what you're missing when it comes to making sure that your firm and your clients are reflective of the community that you serve. There are opportunities that you're missing out on just because you're not open to all the possibilities that your client base or the employee pool in your market has to offer. My guest today is going to help open our eyes to this subject and how it plays into your business strategy. Join me for a fantastic session on diversity, inclusiveness, and business strategy on this episode of The Inside BS Show. My guest today is Trisha Dow, and she's going to help us understand what we're missing when it comes to connecting with the entire market for our services. Trisha, thanks for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. All right. So we are we are old friends because we've been trying to have this conversation for a good 45 minutes now. But I really appreciate <laughs> your patience. Talk to us about how you started your firm and the reasons why you started your firm, because you had a highly successful career working for one of the biggest companies in professional services, one of the biggest firms in professional services. So why did you start your firm and what was your journey like to get to where you are right now? Yeah, so I started the. I started right out of law school with uh, decided really early I didn't want to practice law. Went directly into a big four accounting and advisory firm, and worked. You know, rose through the ranks at that firm. Made partner in two thousand six. Um, got transferred to a couple of different markets around the country to build business fast, uh, and was in charge of those diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives uh, in three different markets in the country. Uh, and, and realized, you know, from my own personal experience that I wasn't getting invited to a lot of important things, you know, the infor- informal relationship building with the people who have juice in the firm, the uh, formal opportunities, business opportunities, client opportunities, the uh, opportunities to actually have constructive feedback on how I was doing and what I needed to do to get to the next level. Um, and realized that that was a kind of a universal problem that a lot of people that are that are you know supposed to be at the top ranks of their companies still aren't very empowered to reach their fullest potential, and that is how Empowered was born, <laughs> with a cheesy business name and all. No, I, so, I think the I think the business name is is reflective of what you <laughs> what you do for your clients. So I'm sorry I interrupted yeah. you. Please continue. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was really important to me that the, the name of the company do two things that actually live up to its word. To, to, it's one word and that it not be um, about my name. I didn't want it to have my name in it. I wanted it to be um, something that had a legacy that was long lasting long after I'm not around working anymore. <laughs> so that's how we came up with the name. All right. Well, it's uh, smart from a branding perspective as well. You know, one of the things I here, so here's here's how I came to realize that I wasn't focused enough on being inclusive throughout my career. So I was I was working for um, a big ticket consulting firm, 
And one of my clients was Ann Taylor Stores. And the, uh, the chief people officer, the, the, the person who headed human resources, and I were just having a, a regular conversation. And she said, you know what I could really use some help with? And this is, um, you know, a, a successful uh, white woman. She said, you know what I could really use some help with? We have a huge problem with uh, hiring people in our in the communities that we serve who look like the people from the communities that we serve in our stores. You know, we have a huge problem with uh, finding African-American folks to work in the stores. And I said, oh, that, that's interesting. I said, let's let's think about that for a minute. Let's talk about who the you know, who the the regional vice presidents are that serve these regions who, you know, who help recruit. And I said, are there, you know, are there people of color in those roles? And she said, you know, come to think of it, I can't think of it. We have, we have, you know, at the time they had like 18 regions. We have 18 regions. I can't think of one. And I said, what about your store managers? Let's, let's talk, let's, let's go find a couple of store managers and let's talk to them about what their experience has been like at the company. You know, people who are, uh, you know, people of color who are store managers. Let's see what their experience has been like at the company. And we can kind of reverse engineer what the process is and, and why, what you're missing. And she said, oh, yeah, that'd be great. She's like, let me get the list. We pull up the list and there's no zero, <laughs> zero store managers of color. And I, and I looked and I shrugged my shoulders and I said, you know, it strikes me that a good place to start would be someone in leadership who is like the people that you're trying to attract, <laughs> because you don't know what you don't know if you haven't had that experience. And, you know, as somebody, and just, that was, that's just a, a diagnostic way for me to come to Wow, I don't know what I don't know. So, I mean, Trisha, is that is it as simple as that? Hey, listen, we need to expose ourselves more, or is that just the place to start? That's a great place to start. So, yes. So, when you go into practically any website of the people in the circles where we play most of the time, um, law firms, accounting firms, private wealth management firms. I do a lot, we do a lot of service-based companies in our firm. Um, it's a sea of white and it's a sea of white men, most typically, especially in the leadership ranks. People that are of color or any other kind of underrepresented group and plus white people that are younger than we are. So the, the generations that are coming up behind us, um, look at that and take it very seriously. They say, is there a place for me in a firm where someone won't fully understand me because they have a very different perspective than I do? Um, so yes, it is a good place to start. You need to, and it, you're already an expert. You already knew that, that, that intuitively that was going to be a problem if she's going to find diverse talent in the retail you know, worker range. So here's the thing though, starting with, we want more diversity in our firm can actually be very problematic if you haven't handled the equity, the equity, the equity and inclusion things in your firm first. So optimize culture, make sure it's inclusive, demonstrate that, message that to both the inside and the outside world of your firm, and then start to bring in diversity because they feel like there's a comfortable place where they really belong and they will thrive. And that's really important. So here's the thing. If you don't do that, let me take the accounting industry as, a, as an example. 
we, you know, the people coming out of school are typically, let's just take male, female, male and female is pretty equal, actually slightly more females joining the accounting industry every year when they graduate. If you look at six, seven, eight years in, half those women have disappeared. If you get to the partnership ranks, it's like 15%, I think, maybe, um, that are women partners. So they're bleeding out, what I call bleeding out at some point, because that inclusion and that equity isn't there in the firms. Now, just making it a little tiny circle that we call DEI is actually not very useful because you're getting everybody on board to do this work or it doesn't work very well. If you focus on DEI, you're focusing on culture at the same time. You're benefiting absolutely everyone in the organization because you're focusing on that. That's a really important point. So issues and challenges that people are having today, the great resignation, how do we return to work? How do we have a combination of return to work and, and work from home? How do we deal with real estate issues? All those things can have DEI components, but you're culturally moving your firm forward in a way that is beneficial on the DEI stuff as well. So uh, I'm really I'm really glad we're having this conversation today. One week ago, exactly one week ago, I'm sitting in the office of a person who runs a, a professional services firm. And the person says to me, white male says to me, um, you know, I, I just I, th- those buzzwords, they just don't do it for me. And, you know, I want to hire the best people. I don't care what their skin color is. I don't care who they love. I don't care what their belief system is. I just want the best. And I said, well, if you if you really just want the best and Trisha, I need you to check me on this. Right. If you really just want the best you need to view diversity, inclusiveness from a recruiting perspective as expanding the pie, right? Because what you're, what, you know, and, and his, his firm is remarkably diverse. They have indigenous people, they have all kinds of people of color, and it's a, it's a very open, welcoming environment, but it's in, almost in spite of the thought process that he was articulating. So how do we break through? And it's, I took it and maybe I took it the wrong way, but I think this is a productive conversation to have. How do we break through the defensiveness of a person who would say, listen, this is a meritocracy and I don't care about skin color. Well, the idea is if it really is a meritocracy, you got to make sure you're reaching out to everyone, regardless of their skin color. How do we break through the defensiveness that says, Oh, no, no, no. All lives should matter when they completely misconstrue what the phrase Black Lives Matter in, was intended to convey. So a couple of things. The first is that you're probably not living in a, in a meritocracy. <laughs> we are not biologically wired to live in a meritocracy. We assess people on a million things that we never write down, that never become policy, You might have policies, and I see this every day in our work, you might have policies that are very, you know, egalitarian um, and mean to be, and that is their intention. But what happens in practice doesn't result that way. So that's number one. You need to be really self-reflective in this work. Um, You need to be really honest with yourselves. You almost can never assess your own culture to know if that's true or not, by the way. You usually have to have someone come in and take a good look at it for you. The second thing is you don't even know what the best people are. 
Like, how do you define that? What are your criteria and where are you looking? Because I can tell you going to the same universities you've been going to for the last 15, 20 years and talking to the same kinds of people um, so that they end up in your candidate pipeline is not the way to find the best people. You have to be really careful about what that means, how you define it. You know, most firms, even firms that are a couple hundred million in revenues are not really, they don't have established criteria that are both hard skill, technical acumen and soft skill stuff. That means this person would fit great in our firm because X, Y, Z. There's things that we shortcut to make those decisions that don't really take into consideration the depth of a person when we bring them into our company. All right. So um, I'm going to give you I'm going to give you another uh, for instance because I, I I'm stumbling across these all the time. I have a I have a, a law firm client that says we want more diversity in our firm. Their entire management committee is white men, right? So what what are people going to aspire to when they you know how are you going how are you ever going to recruit a woman when you you don't have any women who are department heads you don't have any women who are on the management committee. How are you going to recruit people of color when they're when they're not when they're not only are they underrepresented they're just not represented at all in the in the leadership of the firm. So, you know, do you have a is it is it appropriate to have a conversation with someone and say, listen, we need to we need to our our firm sucks when it comes to diversity. We need to establish diversity. So, you're part of our you know our first recruiting class to make sure that we're doing what we should be doing. And, you know, you'll get a fair shot to get promoted up through the ranks. Is it, is, is it, is that the way to go about it? Or do they need to go out and recruit a lateral who can immediately within two or three years, if they're, you know, if they're good, ascend to the ranks of leadership, what's the best way when, when it's just, I mean, the practice of law is historically bad at this. So how do they fix themselves if they want to? So a couple of things. I would actually do both of those strategies in tandem. Um, so hiring lateral hires into your firm that, that achieve greater diversity really quickly is great if you can actually achieve that. <laughs> Just make sure that they're culturally ready for the kind of firm you got right now and be transparent about what that looks like for them. So you need to tell them, hey, you're the Jackie Robinson of this firm. Prepare yourself. We're right. going to try to do everything we can to make it a good fit. But I need you to, you know, you, you got to help us grow into this. Right. And it's OK to be that transparent. I'm a big fan of always just being very transparent and saying, look, we are you are a strategic hire for us in the following ways and list them out and say, we want to make sure we support you fully in what you want to accomplish with us. Here's what we want you to accomplish with us. Do we have alignment there? That's really important. And telling the story of what you're trying to, by the way, people will give you a lot of grace if you're trying. That's number one. You don't have to have it all figured out right away. In fact, nobody does. So you're like a cowboy. It's like cowboy land out there right now. So messaging to the market this is what we've committed to doing. And this is the way we're demonstrating that we're actually doing it is usually enough to have a real conversation with someone. With regard to the people that you're going to like meander, you know, put through your trajectory in the firm that are maybe are starting at two, three years, five years out, because you haven't been focused on hiring diverse hires very, 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 for very long. Um, we do what we call a pipeline management strategy where you take your highest performers that are 
women under other underrepresented groups in leadership. And you kind of wrap your hands around them and say, what do we need to onboard them properly, train them properly, develop them, turn them into people who can develop business properly, how to develop relationships, develop you know, leadership skills, et cetera, which doesn't happen very formally in almost any of the law firms I've ever worked with or engaged with. Um, and that is a way to keep track of what is happening with regard to someone's development very closely with, with timelines and metrics to how that's functioning. Um, and that's a way to make sure that the people you have that are actually from underrepresented groups stick around long enough to get into the leadership ranks and then start to change the culture. There's a magic number. I don't know who, who statistically did this and who did the research, but apparently um, what's been studied is when you get 30% or 33% of your leadership team that is quote unquote diverse people or people from underrepresented groups, you start to have automatic cultural changes in the amount of inclusion that takes place and the amount of representation that takes place in the leadership ranks. Yeah, I, 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 that makes that makes a lot of sense. I think the I think that there has to be a willingness to make that type of effort. And I think people. People don't realize the return on the investment of that effort that they're going to receive. And the example that I give is I ran a, a couple of years ago, pre pandemic, I ran a panel on um, recruiting LGBTQ members of the community to come to work for a professional services firm. And on the panel was a trans woman and no one knew that she was a trans woman until she, you know, came out in front of everybody and said, I'm a trans woman. Everybody, nobody, nobody had any idea. And the story that she shared with us Everybody who was a who was a senior person in that room took away the note that this could be a competitive advantage. And this is the story. So she said, um, I work for American Airlines. And she said, American Airlines is the leader in our field in recruiting. They don't have they have a wait list of people who want to come to work for them because at the time, this is again, two years ago, 18% of their workforce was were members of the LGBTQ community. And they had a, a significant, she couldn't put a number on it, population of trans flight attendants. And she said, American Airlines doesn't have to recruit because members of the trans community are constantly applying because it is one of the best places for people like me to work because nobody judges you. It's an easy environment. It's, you know, it's, it's, uh, you don't have extra obstacles to overcome. That message was so well received by members of the audience to a person, leaders of professional firms were there, were, were coming up to me afterwards going, I didn't realize this could be a competitive advantage for us in recruiting. Now, what we need what we need your help with, Tricia, is how do we message that? How do we make that part of our strategy without appearing to pander, without causing all kinds of, you know, I mean, growing pains internally, I'm okay with. But how do we do it in a way that doesn't, uh, that, that is strategic for the firm, 
but still genuine so that so that members of the, the community that we're looking to recruit from don't think, well, they're just doing it to check off a box or they're doing it right. for these purposes. How do we message that? So I call that performative. Like, what do you do that's not just performative? How do you go beyond the performative and do actual strategic things? Um, let's take, uh, I'll just take accounting again, because it's an easy one for me, given my experience. People of color, Asians are changing that in that industry, but historically people of color have not signed up to be in the accounting profession to begin with. So there's no one to recruit on the back end in these underrepresented groups. That means you're going to have to invest meaningfully in going to schools and explaining what an accounting industry profession could look like for someone. Um, We did that at, at my old firm. So, you know, (laughs) <laughs> it's not going to be an easy answer, but the answer is you dig your, you dig your heels in and you roll your sleeves up and you develop relationships meaningfully with those particular communities, wherever they're hanging out. And that is actually aligned to what you want. And in, in that case, accounting and another case, law firms, whatever it is. And you say, this is what we want to accomplish. This is why it's so important to us. And this is what we're doing to prove that we're, we're serious. You know, I'm actually working with a firm now that wants more people of color in their firm. And I said, well, well you're, only, you're, you're only recruiting at historically mostly white dominant you know, law schools, colleges, whatever it is. Um, you need to actually, if you're going to do that, then you're going to have to develop deeper relationships with uh, diverse you know, people of color, professional organizations, uh, colleges and other kinds of places where people that you want are going to be hanging out. And you can't just go once a year and say, we have an opening for this. Do you have anybody? That's not going to work. They get those requests constantly all day long now. It's just like marketing. It's differentiating yourself in a sea of people saying, we want to do more of this. Can you give us anybody? And that's not the way you do it. It's kind of engaging with the community meaningfully and the places where they're, they're finding value. And then you offer your own value in that situation until it comes time for them to find some place to go. Is there, do we still have a hurdle to overcome because we don't have like black lawyer role models? We don't have, you know, there's no, uh, like, uh, is, is it, are we still like, you know, can a, can a kid can a kid in high school uh, expect to see a black lawyer come to his school at, on career day? Can a, you know, can a kid in high school uh, expect to see, you know, uh, an openly gay person go to their high school and say, I'm an accountant and my firm welcomes people like me? Or do we still have a ways to go? Because, you know, there are plenty of black baseball players. Right. And that's why black kids want to be baseball players, because they see them. Right. How much of it is that we haven't created these role models, these societal role models? And can we change that by having you know people go to elementary school career days and, you know, high school career days and saying, listen, you know, there is a place. Look, I look just like you. I mean, I think of the you know, the Barack Barack Obama video where the African-American kid walks into the Oval Office and he says to Barack Obama, your hair is just like mine. And he touches Barack Obama's hair. You know, nobody's doing that with Richard Nixon. Right. So do we (laughs) do we need those societal role models first or can we 
you know, can we go out there? And I mean, I, we don't have a choice. We have to go out there and do it now. But how helpful would those societal role models be? They would be very helpful. I think they do exist. It's just that there's not nearly enough of them in the in the power ranks of corporate America yet. Um, and they're under an enormous amount of pressure to, st- to do what they do every day and be successful at it in the firms they're in. So, yes, a lot of that already goes on. Um, you know, if I just take the LGBTQ plus community, when I first started in my career, the people who were, who were LGBTQ plus didn't tell us in our firms. They were not out in our firms. Um, I've had several people that left the firm before they would tell me that they were LGBTQ plus. That is changing very rapidly in the last, let's say, 15, 20 years. Um, and it's changing rapidly that we have a lot more um, now that most firms are aware that this matters so much to getting more diversity in the door, they're doing a lot more of sending out their best people from underrepresented groups to have those conversations. Yes. So it's changing, but there's not enough powerhouse available to go do those things as much as they should be. All right. Let's, let's tick off the ways that this is a competitive advantage because I want to, I want to mm-hmm. make sure we drive this point home, right? We already mentioned recruiting, right? Yeah. It's got to be, a, it's got to be a competitive advantage in marketing because you can attract a, you know, a, a larger swath of clients, more diverse clients. You, you know, if you're, if you only have one type of person in your firm, you're missing a whole segment. There's a good chance you're missing a whole segment of the market, correct? Correct. Absolutely. So there's a marketing advantage. What other competitive advantages are there to focusing on them? Well, pretty much every cultural measure is a, it's at least 20% better if you have a focus on DEI. Like really simple things. Like, you know, we acknowledge holidays that people don't normally acknowledge. Or, you know, we have onboarding programs for all kinds of people that come from completely different backgrounds and what they personally need. We have flexible work arrangements. We have, the, you know, those things make a huge difference. So actually people who focus on that in firms typically have measures related to productivity, bottom line, top line that are better than everybody else. Um, not making giant mistakes. Like the very, the most visible ones are like advertising. Like if you see completely tone deaf advertising because no one at the table, no one was at the table that made those decisions. That was a, was a person of color or a, a gay person or a woman, whatever it is, it shows up in really visible, horrifying ways. Right. And those people are, that stuff, by the way, happens to all firms. It's just not as visible as in the advertising realm. But you'd make less mistakes. You make better decisions faster. You have way better cultural measures in every respect. You draw more great talent to the firm. They ret- they're retained. We've never, honestly, I've looked it up. We do not have great data on the cost of people leaving. And now we're in the middle of a, in the midst of a great resignation. We all feel the cost and the pain of it. We've not quantified it in the way that so many other things are quantified, but it's expensive to hire people in and give them tools and talent growth and development and put them on clients that then rely on them for what they brought to the table. And then they're gone in three, four or five years. That is an enormous cost that you can eliminate if you focus on retention and these DEI, these DEI issues and challenges. Okay. So let's talk about you and your firm and how, so how do you go into uh 
a stodgy old good old, <laughs> good old boys network, white people only firm, right? And tell them, hey, listen, you're you know you're going to be extinct. Not you personally, but your firm, because nobody's going to hire you because you you're you, you know you're 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 missing the opportunity that society is giving us here. How do you go in there and and have that conversation with people? Do you just hit them right in the mouth or do you have to ease them into it? Like, and basically the reason I'm asking is how do the rest of us have conversations when we see knuckleheads, you know, uh, who don't get it? Well, I I and my brand and the people that work with me and my firm um, are tend to be very straightforward, but with a lot of grace and compassion around what we're doing, right? No one, I mean, not no one, but 99.5% of people don't want to do the wrong thing. That's, let's just start I, I there. I agree with that, 100%. Yep. And, you know, what I'm asking people to do, no matter what, when they engage with us, is to be self reflective about the impact they're having, regardless of the intent they have, because those two things are very different creatures. And, you know, we can talk about business case all day long, but at the end of the day, we know if we've made assumptions about how someone will function in our firm, whether I should give that project to them, um, who I'm gonna who I'm gonna talk well of in a crowd where that person isn't, right? All those things, every little tiny thought process, behavior, action, interaction, talking, whatever it is, we're making decisions about who we value and how we value them every single day several times a day. And so if I can get someone to understand that in a way that then I can show them the results of what their firm looks like, like what are, what is your, what are your salaries look like for people? What, what, who are you interviewing? Who are you actually hiring? Who is getting promoted in advance? Who's leaving? When I can show them the hard data around what the results are, regardless of the intent they had, they start to see that there's stuff that needs to be fixed. We all have stuff, right? We all have stuff. It's owning your stuff and deciding to do something really important and impactful about it. Um, if we can get there, it doesn't matter what, where they came from, how they show up to me. Um, it's a commitment level. And that commitment starts with a lot of self-reflection. So that's where we go. Yeah. Okay. So when I first met you, you said, oh, we do, we do business strategy and we also focus on DEI. Aren't they the same thing now? Like that isn't that? They absolutely are. Yeah. So explain yes. to people Let's, what we mean by, by how, how they're the same thing. So I believe, because it's reality, that culture, people, DEI is, is a business strategy. <laughs> We've already talked about that earlier in this, in this program. Um, on the business strategy side, we really mean the nuts and bolts of building a strategy around markets and marketing and business development and technology and processes and people so that you can scale and grow your business. So very specific lane, we do it with women-owned and minority-owned firms so that it matches what we're, you know, aligns with our vision on the DEI culture side. But yes, DEI culture people strategy is always a, a business strategy. Okay. So I want you to help those of us who are professionals, who meet with leaders of professional firms, leaders of businesses, when we recognize uh, that, that, that this particular business that we're working with is falling short, 
in this area. I want you to coach us up on how we have a conversation about bringing you and your firm in. And I want you to do that in just one second. I need to let people know, I I got so into the conversation, I forgot all about this. I need to let people know that our show is brought to you by Sundrowski Corporate Advisors. Since 1983, Sundrowski Corporate Advisors has provided expert client service to professional firms and clients all over the United States. They have offices in Detroit and Chicago. They specialize in tax planning, consulting, family office advisory, uh, dispute handling. If you have a dispute and it involves numbers, Sundrowski are the people to call, business valuations, litigation support, forensic accounting, risk management. I mean, if you have an issue and it involves accounting, especially if you're focused on high net worth individuals or you're focused on litigation support, Sandrowski, they're the folks to call, and you can reach them by calling 866-717-1607, 866-717-1607. We're also brought to you by My Revenue Roadmap Guide. If you're looking to build your business and you want a marketing plan, I've got one for you, and it's free to you for watching our show or for listening. If you're listening to us on the podcast, all you have to do is go to revenueroadmapguide.com, revenueroadmapguide.com, enter your contact info there. You can download my marketing plan. It took me years to develop. I share it with my clients. Now I'm sharing it with you for free. You can customize it for your own business. Just go to revenueroadmapguide.com, enter your contact info, and you'll get it for free right there. We're talking to Trisha Dow. She's the founder of Empowered. It's a company that focuses on business strategy and diversity, equity, and inclusiveness. If you want to reach her, I want you to go to empoweredlc.com. I am going to put that in the show notes. We'll put it up on the screen. It's empoweredthewordlc.com. You can also reach out to her. We're going to put her email address, as long as she gives us permission to, in the show notes, and you can click right on it and reach out to her. All right, Trisha, I asked you before we went into um, that commercial break there, I asked you how we can bring up the subject of bringing in an expert to help maybe one of our clients or one of our friends who owns a business and there's just a big gap and we see there's a big gap. How do we broach the subject of bringing you in to help you know, fix what's going on there? Yeah, so couple, you know, a few things that the things that people are most challenged with right now, I can't get people. I'm losing people. I don't know how to orchestrate a return to work or a hybrid workplace. I don't know how to uplift my leaders so that they can actually manage a hybrid workplace well and leadership well. Um, all of those are kind of the things that are happening right now that are bringing people in. There's obviously like, we have a problematic leader that is saying, you know, spewing microaggressions all day long. Those crisis situations are happen, but they're not as common as I, I don't feel like I'm getting as much as I want from my people and I'm, I don't have enough diversity and, I need, and I'm not retaining the diversity I bring in. Um, the way to engage this is really just to say, you should really have a conversation with, with Trisha and her team. Um, we tend to be very informal. We're just going to find out if we can be helpful. Oftentimes, it means that we refer you to other people in the, in the space that can help them with certain things. Maybe you have to do a, a, you know, a compensation analysis. That's not something we do, but we can find out how to get it for you. So it's really, let's have a really deep conversation about what you're most concerned about and what's really happening and figure out if, if there are things that you can do both tactically, simple things. You know, Sometimes it's just, you need to communicate your 
FWA better so that it's better received by your firm. Let's do a communications plan. Or it can be much more deep dive. Let's assess your culture. Let's do a survey. Let's do interviews. Let's do focus groups and figure out what you're really looking at and make a decision on what to do next. So again, very informal. Have a, have a conversation with them. See what they have to say about what you're challenged with and let's see where it goes. All right. Let's talk about um, women in the workplace and how we make the workplace more welcoming of women, particularly among the executive ranks, particularly with the pandemic where, you know, because we're struggling now with women who have exited the workforce and may not be able to go back because of the way the, the climate is so how do we, you know, what do we do along those lines to make it to make it easier for women to choose our company, to choose our firm? I guess the first thing is, it really isn't that difficult. <laughs> it's much more simple than we give it credit for. I can tell you when I was when I got transferred to the North Carolina practice with my big firm experience, um, I was put in charge of a team that was largely all young women. That we're having lots of kids. And I didn't, I actually have never had children. So I was in a position to be a leader of this team of women who are, and our practice was such that we had to travel a lot. When you have enormously good communication skills and you allow people the flexibility to do what they have to do personally. And by the way, though that line between professional and personal is gone now, completely gone. It's not blurred, it's gone. We now have to help our people manage their personal stuff so they can be professionally present for us. That's the, that's the job as a leader now. But simple things like communicating among your team as to how you can accommodate flexibility for people. And that's across the board, not just women having kids. Um, what do I need with regard to communicate? You can have expectations of people on flexible work arrangements. They have to be highly communicative, high performers, but you can be a high performer at 11 o'clock at night or five o'clock in the morning. It doesn't have to be when I'm available to talk to you. So what are the communication mechanisms for that to happen? How well are their project management skills? If you put this, the, the framework around that and you have great communication, you can, you, can, you can make almost anything work unless you have, to be fit, you have to be physically present for a certain period of time. And then we get to have another conversation about how we help you make that happen. But in most places, we have enormous opportunities for flexibility. We just haven't explored them all, even in the midst of the pandemic yet. And if we're going to welcome women back, we got to say, look, this is how it's different here now. This is the, these are the revelations we've had in the last two years. And this is why we think it can work for you, too. Let's have a real conversation about it. All right. So who if you could pick anybody to work with, any company, any specific person in a company, who would you pick to work with? Who's your you know, I, I'm going to ask you to pick favorites, right? Who's your who's your favorite? What's your favorite type of client? Give us the you know, give us the uh, the the um, the persona or the the ideal client for you. Well, I got to say the clients I have are I am loving every bit of time we spend with the clients we have. Well, let's just start there. They are typically service-based companies, although it's actually easier, shall I say, or more simple to help companies that are not in the service-based space because there's some separation between product and your internal team. And that separation gives you a little leeway to make decisions differently. It's a little more simple. When you're in a service-based company, the people are the product and you have to be on brand, which means your behaviors, both inside and outside, have to be the same and consistent and great all the time. Okay. That being said, 
I would love to be in a company that's actually trying to get this right and spending a lot of investment on it, but still aren't getting it right. And that's because the inclusion piece is missing. So for example, Google, Google Intel, Intel is doing great things, by the way. These giant, and I have a, I have a thrill about doing uh, work in interna- internationally with firms that have international people from other countries. And you got to figure out the nuances of the differences that have to, have to be spoken into your DEI strategies. That fascinates me. And we're doing a lot of that kind of stuff right now. But the big companies that have done a lot of important things and still have not accelerated the results fast enough, I would love to be talking to them because some of the heavy lifting that has to be done is, is, is not easy work. It's wrapping yourself around the people you most want to herald through your firm in a powerful way that keeps them there. And that's what I would love to focus on with them. Okay, great. So let's say I'm in front of them and I get to pitch you. What's uh, what's the competitive advantage? How do I tell them you got to hire empowered? And they're going to say, "Well, the name alone says it all." Dave, bring them in. No. <laughs> I mean, what's the so what's the com- what's the competitive advantage? We actually put arms and legs because execution. You know, because you do business strategy too. We put arms and legs around executing on the people stuff that people find so hard to hold themselves accountable to every day. And what do I mean by that? For example, we put together masterminds, you know, development, leader development mastermind programs um, for up and comers that are from underrepresented groups, women, people of color, et cetera. For the, and this is actually the idea I had when I jumped out right at, right at, right at first. Um, where they can get a peer advisory experience, which is really powerful. We knew right away and soon that whatever we could impart was great. If we could get other people in a mastermind to, to share knowledge and understanding and challenges and help each other, it would be better than anything we could provide on our own. Um, tutelage, leadership tutelage and coaching and, and, and strategic coaching, and then strategic development around their own trajectories that we could be very specific about what we were learning that could be communicated back to firm-wide macro strategies and micro-level strategies around how to get them into leadership positions effectively. Because a lot of them are floated into leadership positions effectively without any kind of net or kite. And they end up leaving the firm or it's a massive failure because no one's got eyes on it. No one's making sure it happens the way it should. And that's where we can be extremely kind of successful in a very niche way. Okay. What um what have you what have you learned from the pandemic about about your business and what have you learned from the pandemic about how your clients should be approaching this strategy? I guess personally, I've had a lot of a couple of really giant epiphanies. The first is that I don't have to be I don't have to have twenty five coffee meetings a week. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> but the idea that I have to constantly be out there pounding pavement um, to make to, to, for anyone to take me seriously was a complete lie that I was telling myself for lots of years. Um, and I've, we've changed that, obviously. We are doing work in other countries now. We're speaking on stages in other countries now. And everyone knows we can do business development now like this, which is awesome. Um, that's epiphany number one. Num- epiphany number two is managing energy. Like the energy that it takes to be interesting and compelling and truly connected in a virtual environment like this is more. It takes a different skill set. 
than it did when you were right in front of people and you could feed the energy back and forth between you. It's just not the same. Managing energy through this pandemic has been, and focus, has been extremely important to how well we're faring now. I guess with regard to these, these strategies, if you haven't gotten a wake-up call about the fact that your culture needs to change, the way you do things with regard to people needs to change in a meaningful way to be really extraordinarily thriving and not constantly exhausted, <laughs> then you're kind of missing, you're missing a big boat, you know? And the people who are figuring this out in a really kind of roll up our sleeves and figure this out kind of way are the ones that are going to be massively successful in, in two, five, 10 years from now. Okay. So what's the, what is the best place for a firm to start if they're, you know, if they're thinking about these initiatives, like they're, they're thinking to themselves, you know, I want more younger people in my firm. And I know this is, I mean, this is the way people think. I'm not, you know, it might, it might not be important to me, but it's important to, to the people who are the next generation that nobody's thinking, Hey, it, it might not be important to me, but the subtext is, Hey, listen, it wasn't important enough for me to do it in the first 25 years. I owned this firm, but now I'm recruiting more younger people and it's important to them. So I better get with it. Right. Where did that, where does that person start? That person starts by assessing where they currently sit. Like it's very hard to, you know, just take basic marketing and talent acquisition strategies are part marketing. Mm. Um, if you can't speak to what your culture represents now, it's going to be very hard to get people interested in coming. So, you know, that means employee engagement surveys, data collection, data analysis around your HR and employee life cycles, um, focus groups that include younger people, like, cause you already have some young people that are that are just chomping at the bit to tell you what they'd most love to see. So use them, you make them part of the experience and the strategic, the, the strategy you ultimately drive through the firm. Um, and then, you know, you can create great messaging that draws more people, but you got to be more creative about it. It is because we're also pressed for time and we don't get paid to do the things that are most important to us for what the firm looks like in 10 years. We're, we're, we, you know, I would say like the, the recession in 08, 09, at least in my own experience back at my giant firm was that we, we moved from a much more long-term mindset and approach to a very short-term approach. And that leaves us kind of naked when it comes to these long-term strategies that produce amazing results and elevate our brand exponentially over time, because we're worried about what we're going to sell this month. What we're, what we're going to actually accomplish this month, how many hours we're going to get on the, on the books this month. Um, if you can divorce yourself of that for a second <laughs> and think more broadly about what you want to accomplish long-term with regard to people and how you're going to do that and how you're going to engage them meaningfully, you're going to be way better off. All right. So Trisha, what, uh, what do people need to do if they want to connect with you to address some of these issues in their businesses? You can find me on LinkedIn. My name in LinkedIn is Trisha Dow. You can see our website, www.empoweredlc.com, or you can email me at trisha at empoweredlc.com. So all that information is going to be down in the show notes. Trisha, give us three things, three things that we should take away from, from the time that you and I spent together 
Um, so, you know, somebody who's listening and, and has a professional firm, what are the what are the three things that they should be thinking about that they should take away from this uh, okay. to, to act right now? Assume nothing. Number one, assume nothing. Number two, realize that intent does not equal action or impact. Oh, that's it. That's it. That is, you say that again. <laughs> you can't just want it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Intention is one thing and it's very nice but it doesn't equal impact or action. Okay. And number three, this is a journey. It's not a plug and play. It's gonna take time to get from where you are now to where you wanna be, and there's gonna be things you have to do that are meaningful in the process. Yeah, your, your stock price is not gonna go up tomorrow because you hired right. the African-American guy, right? But right. it's the right thing to do for the long-term future of your business. Right. Absolutely. Trisha, thank you so much. I really, I could, I could talk for another hour about this. There are so many questions. So I really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for being a part of this. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. All right. So we talked to Trisha Dow today, and she's the founder of Empowered. And you can just punch in empoweredlc.com. You can find out all about her. The information is going to be down in the show notes. I want you to think about it this way. The future of your company is at stake. This is strategy. So if you're not thinking that way, you need to go back and listen to this interview again. And then even more important, reach out to Trisha and call her. I'm Dave Lorenzo. This is the Inside BS Show, and we're here every day with a brand new interview. I thank you for joining us today. Please take a look at what you're doing in your firm today and think about where you're going to be 10 years from now, who you want your clients to be and who you want your partners to be internally. And I think if you do, you'll realize how important you Until tomorrow, my friends, thanks for joining us. We'll see you right back here for another edition of the Inside BS Show. Between now and then, here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life.